Hi, this is Graham Brown and welcome to the Excel Podcast. The Excel Podcast is a platform for the bigger conversations about leadership in the 2020s. Who's leading? How are they leading? And what stories do they have to share? Through the stories of leaders, we'll address the big challenges of our times from the era of AI to the Asian century to nurturing a new generation of entrepreneurs. If you're enjoying these conversations, subscribe to the podcast at xlpodcast.org. Everybody, welcome back to the XL Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. A big part of preparing us for tomorrow is preparing the next generation with the right skills, the right mindsets, and the right environment to go out and make the world a better place. Education is a big part of that. So I'm delighted today to be joined once again by Atul Tamernika, who is the chairman of the Global Schools Foundation. We're going to talk about well, school of the future and schools of today, what's changing? A lot has changed, as we know, from the education experience just in recent years at all. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you, Graham, for having me back. It's a pleasure always and a delight to speak to you and, you know, really understand what's happening in the world as well as being able to share what we have, uh, you know, observed in the last couple of months or couple of quarters and be able to, you know, share that, communicate that with all our you know, well-wishers in all our communities around the world. Yeah, it's great. You have a big community as well. We will talk about that. Let's, uh, before we go into the, the piece about what's changed in education, talk us through the the latest on global schools. It's 20 years almost. I don't know if you passed the 20-year mark already. Congratulations if you have. Sorry if I haven't sent my well wishes for your anniversary. Where are you now with the global schools journey? Well, we'll be completing 20 years just in about two months' time. Right. And uh, I think we are in a very exciting phase of education in case of uh, K-12 education particularly. Uh, we see a huge, huge change occurring over the in the education industry, uh, particularly post-COVID, because it has left an indelible mark on many aspects of K-12 education. And so we see a huge change. Uh, opportunity for us to be able to tap into those opportunities and be able to explore that and really exploit the advantages of what these opportunities are going to present to us. Mm, that's great. Well, we'll talk about all of that and the challenges really in education. How many schools are in the global schools family now? Uh, as of now, as we speak, we have roughly about 35 campuses Hmm. in our uh, portfolio of network of schools uh, and it's growing day by day and something very exciting is happening around the world and we are getting a lot of opportunities to be able to participate and uh, you know partner and sort of you know uh, look into the operations of many schools around the world and that is really making uh, us be able to be ready to provide you know the whole gamut of best practices uh, we're looking at uh, enormous amount of uh, expertise and talent that we've accumulated to mm. be able to use that for betterment of schools around the world. And as we see that many schools which operate in a single silo mode are amazingly not aware uh, or rather aware about the network benefits and you know how they can benefit from being part of a larger global franchise. So we believe that uh, you know these opportunities for the schools 
around the world will get them uh you know accelerate their growth in a significant way mm. uh so that uh, they can really take many of these inputs many of these uh synergies that we can bring to them and really grow into a much better and faster school quick fire round then just questions about global schools latest campus opened obviously this may change by the time this podcast goes out which was the newest one the latest in campus we expect to be opening uh, in saudi arabia in riyadh for mm. the one world international school and it will open its doors by september this year and how many students will be in that are we looking at about 200 students to start with mm. in the first year and you know growing to a capacity of 2000 students over a period of 5 to 6 years what's the largest campus in the family the largest still single location largest campus would be the gi singapore mm. which is currently having close to about 3000 students in one single campus Mm. that was the first one right the the mothership so to speak where it all started that's correct this is the this is the one that we relocated about 5 years back mm. uh into a uh, 4 years back into a brand new custom built purpose built campus which is called a smart campus so yeah that's that's the one which has the largest number of students as of now mm. and i've been there a few times and it is very nice beautiful campus yes. you got your own podcast studio in there and everything it's really nice it's a nice environment for students it's really relaxed it's not i mean obviously it's a school but it's not the kind of school so that i remember as a kid it's very bright airy well designed a lot of thoughts gone into the layout was there any sort of input from you personally about how it should look yeah Uh, so can you repeat that again was there any input from you at all personally about how it should look the campus well um you know personally i i feel that every campus has its own character has its own unique identity and uh, we are looking at every ca- every campus to have something that represents the life of the campus something mm. that represents the dna and the pulse of the campus and and so we're looking at you know building many more campuses in the future and the the latest one that is going to be getting started next year in in singapore is a brand new digital campus for one world international mm. school which is going to be another notch higher than what we have done for the gi smart campus uh which will embody many aspects of technology will embody many aspects of learning best practices and uh i'm sure will become uh, one of those iconic campuses mm. in the world so for those that may be familiar with you i mean obviously here in singapore many people will be familiar with you from gis and that school is one school under the global schools foundation umbrella and you have other schools which traditionally they would have been competition in some way but you're all cooperating I mean like one world is as another example you have other schools that may be teaming up with you being part of this network this community and sharing knowledge as well so that i guess yes. is an interesting angle we're going to talk about, i mean you've approached that very much i mean for those people that don't know at all you come from the world of business then in another life you were the country manager for IBM that's how business would think about the problem isn't it it's like how do we team up on this because 
I guess if you're running a school, if you're a school principal, you're not thinking about building out a large ecosystem or network. You're just thinking about, you know, maybe the exams or, you know, making sure everything's good in the school. You're not necessarily thinking on that global stage, are you? So I'm curious, like, why you started looking in that direction with schooling and education rather than just focusing on one school. So I think uh, the way it evolved for us uh, from a single campus to a few campuses was purely word of mouth. Uh, it so happened that when we first started the, the first campus in Singapore in 2002, the word got out among the communities in Kuala Lumpur, in Tokyo, and very soon we started getting inbound inquiries. Uh, could you also start a similar school for our communities here? And a few people approached us from both the countries. And so we we explored that option. We decided to kind of, you know, uh, try it out. And we established the campuses in Tokyo and Malaysia in 2006. But I think I would say one of the biggest advantages we had during those days was a combination of giving very good quality education at moderate fee points. Hmm. And that, I think, value proposition stuck really well with many people, not because they were not able to afford the high fees of high international schools, but actually they saw a much better, simpler, and much more amplified value proposition that we brought to the market, and which very well they could have afforded to pay some of the most expensive schools, like $40,000 a year. But they said, well, this product, this solution gives me a but much better you know, back for my bank, uh, for my money. And uh, that way they realized that we have a better solution and a better product here, which is taking care of the learning requirements of the children in today's uh, times. Mm. So it was really that concept coupled with a, a lot of benefits that we wrapped around uh, so one of the one of the key differentiators between us and a typical academic expertise is that the academic expertise always has the best of academic world, but may not have the best of finance, may not have the best of technology, the entrepreneur mindset. And it's very difficult to find such a academic professionals who have all in one, although they are. I've I've come across many who are, you know, heads of schools and also running the enterprise. But I think what we did was to really supplement the the heads of schools with on the areas where they were not very accustomed to or they were not very experienced in. So, for example, finance, we decided that it's something that heads of schools should be involved to make sure that the finance uh, requirements are being met. But at the same time, we decided that, look, why don't we supplement them with resources, with teams, with expertise, which are able to help them with, you know, getting communications across, getting the, the product marketing USPs across, uh, finance, HR requirements. And the more important part is to really create a technology layer, which was supposed to bring in all the elements of business process reengineering. How do you run the schools? How, what processes to be automated? So essentially, we kind of supported all the heads of schools mm. with the backend kind of services and that's how they became super efficient. So they didn't have to worry about these functions and they were able to concentrate on the talent management, on the aspects of teacher development, on the aspects of learning management, you know, personalized learning. And they were able to basically make sure that the core of the enterprise, the schools and the learning aspect of it 
was always given the top priority focus on this. Mm. So that's how I think we be- we became a fantastic team, complementing each other in our own ways and allowing uh, uh, the heads of schools to really you know be more efficient and be more uh, productive. You see that in business, don't you? Where you, in another generation, you had a payoff in choice. You could either choose a brand quality or you could choose something that was cost effective. You couldn't have both. It was impossible. You either paid like top end brand. I mean, in retail, for example, you either had branded goods or you could buy discount goods. And then you had these uh, skilled business teams that came in like Zara, Inditex, for example, who said, right, well, actually we're going to have both. We're going to go in the middle here where you get quality and it's at a good price. And it wasn't that they could compromise on either. They had to go in and they had to build out all the back office stuff that you talked about to make that work. They made that super efficient, not such that they could then say this is the cheapest in the market because that's not what people wanted. But then they could say we could strip out all the waste such that we can focus purely on what people want. And, you know, that's very agile in their processes. When we see that a lot, that, you know, that middle ground where you get quality and cost effective, you see it in airlines, you see it in automotive. Toyota is a great example as well. You know, you're not paying for the top end brand brand, but at the same time, you're buying into something that is quality and is like built with consideration for what people want, for example. So, but that requires a business mindset. And I guess in the world of schools, you know, where you have the operators who may be, and I'm, you can maybe give us a bit more insight into this, people who are sometimes it's families that run school, sometimes it's individuals, sometimes it's private equity. You know, these aren't necessarily people who are thinking like that or looking outside and say, what can I learn from manufacturing for schooling? They will look to other teachers, you know, and they're going to get all their insights from teacher conferences and maybe, you know, the teacher magazines. There's not going to be anything in there about, you know, quality or process management, is there? So, what are those conversations like when you talk to people who may be, you know, passionate about education, but, you know, the kind of things that you talk about, like, you know, cost control, quality management, process, maybe for them, like completely new. Do people understand or do you have to kind of couch it in the terms of teaching or education for them to really get it? So, you know, you brought up a very interesting case study about the Zara as well as, uh, you know, there are many, many such case studies where there are two approaches to how people market their products. Uh, one approach is to say, this is what my product stands for, and I'm going to offer it to you. I have a very target demographics that I want to attend to, and I know exactly how to reach out to them. Now, that's one model, and that's working successfully for many others. The other model is where I know for sure that, uh, like Zara even, Aldo, which makes the shoes, a Canadian company, mm. is that, you know, they looked at a situation where you had all these beautiful Manhattan stores filled with all the branded shoes, having four or five units of each shoe in their shop, selling one shoe a quarter. And they said, is that the model I want to be in? Mm. Or can I be 
what you mentioned about is can i actually offer something what the community is asking for or what my customers are looking for we took the second approach initially we took a second approach to actually go down to the community understand what they're looking for not just the price point element but also in terms of how the curriculums have to be tailored how the activities have to be tailored and come back to the community and say look this is what we're giving you is this something that you're happy with Mm-hmm. and if they like it if they want more of it we're able to tailor our models on our curriculum side and i would say this not just limits to activities but it also is is pretty much involved in all seven or eight directions of what we call as the education model of excellence which which includes engagement with the community the leadership development uh you know skills and competencies development and many other aspects so using that model we went and fine tuned our product and services and at the same time we always kept at the back of our minds that the product cannot be the most expensive product in the market what is it that the community can afford within this demographic so we had a lever to manage the product pricing in a way taking a cue from what the community was expecting hmm. so in a way we kind of defined our target demographics based on what input we got from the community rather than saying we are here as school we represent these values and if you like it you come to us otherwise thank you very much hmm. and i think that approach and being very nimble and very flexible on the ground allowed us to really tailor solutions to different markets and i give you an example so when we first opened the second campus in malaysia we decided to offer a to start with an asian indian curriculum and then immediately the feedback from the community was we are more comfortable with the british education mm. and we like that also as an option so we decided to offer the cambridge primary years similarly in japan when we initially set up the schools we were getting south asian expats but then the japanese community started uh you know enrolling into our schools and then we offered japanese languages we offered japanese activities extracurricular activities and now it has become a very popular school for the japanese community mm. so i think this trial and error combined with making sure the product and the solution is within reach of these people that is something that was very hard to put together because you know it's not very easy to say i'm going to offer a product or a solution at a certain price and not being able to deliver that that's our biggest challenge hmm. so we've got to be extremely cautious to say i am not a product or a school xyz and we have a fee of 20000 us dollars we go and listen to them we take inputs from them and then we say well is this the fee that is will work for you and then we work backwards the entire financial modeling to make sure that we are able to deliver that successfully consistently without being able to go back to the community and say sorry i made a mistake in the fee pricing i think i've got to really pick it back to something else and that's disaster so this way we took the approach of being flexible nimble listening to the community and uh, i think it's been very successful because this has allowed us to create very very different types of products exclusively for certain communities and uh, it is basically giving them great comfort in what they're getting and it is also allowing us to be able to create multiple versions of what we are doing not just from a brand point of view even a brand let's say global indian international school may have different campuses in different countries with different pricing but the value proposition is the same 
Mm. So we look at we look at both flexible approaches, and uh, a recent example is also we did similar activities and study in uh, in Saudi Arabia, and the community input was very different than what we thought we could be doing. So we went back to the ministry and we said, well, the community is asking for this, and uh, I think we should be able to do that, and and that's I think how. We we want our teams and leadership teams to be constantly looking into and hearing what the parents are saying, hearing what the students are saying, and we have mechanisms to collect such information to to get that feedback into our you know bowl of ideas, and then we try and explore what can be done to make that possible or feasible, and uh, what should be done further explored. to to make the community happy about what they have been asking for so it's a very iterative process and during the life cycle of a school uh, during any first 10 years these things have to be constantly tailored so it is almost like flying five different aircrafts where each aircraft is a campus where everything is changing from altitude to climate to the you know external situations internal situations it's it's almost similar to that and and uh, that way i think we have to make sure that every campus remains in air you know sufficiently fueled uh, you know well serviced uh, meeting the expectations of what they are supposed to achieve and and that's how we want to make sure all our schools are flexible and nimble all the way mm. there's a big difference isn't there between what i suppose is for many school operators working in the school which is probably 99% of what they do. I mean in your analogy of flying the plane they're just trying to keep the thing above ground and you know landing it safely which is probably a lot of firefighting and you know just dealing with what's urgent if you were an operator a single operator but you're building and you've consciously built this core competence which is working on the school which is almost stepping outside of the day-to-day operations of the school and saying let's how do we build something that people really want here and how do we respond to that now if you think of that in terms of the network you have one school you can only really draw on your experience of one school in one place right but if you have two schools now you have a network effect you know three schools five schools that now starts to increase in value because you can see what works here and what doesn't work here and then you can also you know bring in insights from different schools and also you can you know amortize your costs effectively in the skills over 35 schools so you know that's where one school can benefit from that network effect which they never would have had before and i'm interested to know who actually owns and runs schools because often you don't actually see that do you i mean you will know these people very well and you interact with them on a daily basis but as a parent as a student and even as an educator as a teacher you probably don't interact with the people who actually own and run the school so tell us a bit about the people who are behind this that i'm sure there are many different characters and types as well who actually decides to set up and run a school who actually decides to buy a school what kind of players are there in the market so if you look at the industry um, there are several different types of players uh, there are the families or entrepreneurs who would do it more as a community service and they set up they set up the schools uh, allowing them to service the schools establish them they would have done it for some reasons maybe personal reasons sometimes they have situations where their children 
uh, are the ones who really you know encourage them to start schools or they feel that my child should be going to my school so you got one full set of you know family promoter sponsored schools which are managing these schools in uh, in many countries the second set of uh, schools are the ones and many of these schools tend to be very single single location or maybe you know two locations in same city uh, and whereby the family is deeply involved a lot of members get involved and uh, they are constantly looking at you know uh, trying to grow the schools but again uh, they do not they do not have the benefits of these network effects or being part of a larger enterprise and many times these families can actually run the schools for even 50 60 years mm-hmm. and we've been in conversations with certain families where they are saying that look we have two generations of people actually running the schools and that the third generation is probably is going to stay away from it and do something else so we would like to hand over the schools to organizations such as yours as a foundation because uh, they believe that if it's linked with the foundation it's going to actually be beneficial to them because there's not going to be sort of a, a flip or a trade sale uh, of the schools going forward and it'll be a, in a permanent anchor with the foundation with the foundation taking views about uh, how to run the schools in the same way as they've been thinking about uh, you know where the community benefits long term issues are always looked at with significant importance as compared to short term issues the second vertical of school promoters could be the corporates or could be i would say institutions uh, such as the missionary institutions which are you know uh, you know putting in a lot of money of their surpluses and into community education they are running thousands and thousands of schools so they are running as for not for profit so i think that's a completely different sector the third area is where over the last 15 years i would say since 2010 there has been a significant interest from private equity financial institutions banks and uh, i would say even uh, entrepreneurs to be able to suddenly come into education because they feel these are very steady cash flow generating businesses highly predictable very sticky cash flows and they believe that uh such businesses are more treated like infra projects where you've got you know like real estate reits kind of thing where you've got very stable and very predictable uh, incomes and uh, so education falls under that but not exactly the same way uh, however that has led to a lot of interest among these players and some players are you know buying more and more schools and and within them they have you know the big ones which are kind of aggregating as many schools as possible uh buying them at uh, significant valuations and then you have the second set of second tier bankers financial institutions which actually do it just as a business where they want to you know just kind of go in buy four five schools you know and then flip it out and and just sell it in the market to kind of make some immediate profit and and they tend to sometimes get into situations where they could generate some very good profits in such transactions uh and and so these are the second tier of uh, financial institutions private equities and uh, boutique fa- boutique firms mm-hmm. which are getting into that so i think the financial interest has grown exponentially over the last 15 years uh and for reasons known to us at the same time they are also 
looking at some of these institutions are looking at long-term investment. So they're looking at, you know, maybe holding these uh, investments for a period of eight to 10 years, may not be three to five years. Uh, and, and there are some who may be actually eventually because funds have to be sold. So eventually ownership will get transacted. But the good thing about Global Schools Foundations is that when we spoke to the families that came on board with us, uh, a family in Malaysia, a family in South Korea, uh, and uh, uh, families in Cambodia and, and some families in India as well. They believe that, you know, working with the Global Schools Foundation will always ensure the larger interest of the students and teachers and the parents. And there will not be any commercial shocks that are coming in between, mm-hmm. which are going to damage the reputation that they've built over the last, you know, two, three, five decades. And that's very important to them. So that's how... The families find a great comfort in talking to us and having conversations around uh, these schools that are required to be acquired. And, and we are supported by some very, very highly reputed financial institutions such as Apollo and, uh, and the international banks such as DBS, Time Charts, and, and several other banks. So the, I think the financial partners that we have are great. They have a great appetite to support us in markets where we should be exploring and getting into the new markets and and they keep telling us that you know you guys are you guys have to be you know grow you have to grow to uh, to new countries to new markets and and let's talk it out and let's see how best we can grow so we work on these uh, capital structures which allow us to be able to take larger risks uh, to go into new markets which may not be established uh, for example saudi arabia is a market where not many private equity, not many private schools are existing, but many such, uh, and, and then we very easily took a step that we felt Saudi Arabia, and particularly Riyadh City, which is a financial capital of Saudi, was the right place to be in. And, and we are just very close to, I think, about four to five minutes drive from the financial city there. So it's, it's a great exercise that we feel uh, these different types of education owners that we come across and uh, we believe that uh, engaging with them will be uh, highly beneficial to both parties, the Global Schools Foundation, as well as the school families, which have created these schools out of their blood and sweat and, you know, and families and generations. I mean, uh, a couple of uh, weeks back, I spoke to somebody uh, in one of the North American uh, locations and uh, they said, well, uh, the person I spoke to, they said, I I am the reason why the school was started 60 years back. Mm. And I said, why is that? He said, because I was three years old at that time and my mother wanted a kindergarten. And she set up a school and she said, well, she retired at, at her age at 60, 70. And then I took it over when I was 30. And then now my mom is 90 years old. I am 60 years old. I think two generations have run the school. Mm. 60 years with our family, fantastic. We love the community. Everybody's happy, but we want to pack it. We want to give it to somebody who is uh, not going to be looking at short term, who is not going to be looking at it purely as a financial re-engineering exercise that one needs to do, but more as a larger interest of my communities and this North American country. So that's how we realize that you know there's a great deal of uh, great deal of I would say privilege and advantage that we bring to all these families. Mm. Yeah, it's a good story at exciting times as well. We're going to put all the details and we're going to share your details with those listening who maybe want to start that conversation with you because 
they may be like you mentioned the one in the US where it could be a family business for generations right and um probably their only exit at this stage is to sell it to private equity because that's all they know that's all that's available right now is that they these are the only ones that are actively like known out there is to sell it to somebody who's going to take it on purely as a business and flip it and yet here you are and there's this option because maybe their kids don't want to take it on you know maybe their kids want to go and work in fintech or they want to go and travel the world whatever it is we see this with family businesses don't we the third generation wants to do their own thing make their own mark and then there's this other way which is you know, give it to the the financial guys but what you're suggesting is there's this other option but that means you know reaching out having that conversation we're going to put all the details there so people can start that conversation and i think you know the good thing about at all is and you know if you listen to any of his podcasts that he's done in the past he's very passionate about education in general even though you are a business mind in your previous life before you started global schools um education even in the business world as well was your thing um they can find out a bit more about you by listening to some of the other work that you've done as well it's out there on the internet some of the podcast interviews but before we get there let's talk about what's changed let's spend a few minutes just talking about the change in the last few years because we can't talk about education without talking about the last 3 years because it has been a challenge i remember at one point we were talking and it was really the beginning of covid i think so this was kind of in the first few months of covid and a lot of you know whilst the world of work was trying to figure out what to do with their people and then the governments obviously there were schools as well you know like kids had to be educated kids had exams and you know everyone was kind of like figuring things out and i think that's kind of you know at that time we were talking and i realized just how much of you know what was at stake you know it wasn't just you know 100 workers in a company you've got families because if the kids don't get educated they have to stay at home then people have to stay at home and look after the kids and then you have this kind of knock on effect on this whole community which is impacted and you think of the school at the heart of that so let's run into some there's some data that's come out recently at all would like your thoughts on this um these are random data points that've been published in recent weeks um not specific about global schools at all but you know a lot of data is published about education in general um obviously this is a stressful time has been for a lot of principals as well so um interesting data coming out from the national association of principals and deputy principals this is specific for ireland 64% of principals report being overly stressed at work double the national average and it's increased in recent years which was kind of interesting and i think this sort of reinforces the point about people being working in the business just firefighting keeping the thing on the road so that's one data point the second one i'll put three data points out there and just ask you to comment generally the second one is um pew research so showed that 65% of students preferred in person learning to uh hybrid or remote only 9% actually preferred online which was interesting um you know th- there are more factors than just learning going on here obviously isn't it that you know maybe the social factor and just lastly one uh, data point coming out by the QS higher education briefing it was entitled is covid-19 still impacting student decision making and based on survey of students in 56 countries number one 
concern for students was employment prospects, 64%. Only 3% of students were worried about COVID-19. I mean, that says a lot about the generation, really, doesn't it? And kind of what they're thinking about. A lot of data out there about education, how it's changed. I know it's very broad. Um, can you help summarize what's going on at the moment? What are you seeing at the coalface of education in terms of teachers and students and people's you know, thoughts and, and feelings about where we are now with education? So I think uh, let's, let's understand from an uh, industry, you know, I'm just taking a broad uh, you take US, Europe, and Asia per se. The first thing that really happened and that struck everyone is that there is an alternative to physical face-to-face -face education, right? Everything was running face-to-face, -face, including schools, uh, whether it is tuitions, uh, whether it is enrichment classes. So people were so used to the fact that there was no alternative way of getting educated. It was always about going and sitting in front of the teacher, uh, learning your music or dance or whatever activities and, and actually, you know, contribute uh, in that way was a pathway to kind of, you know, learning. I think what COVID did definitely is, uh, as, as all the researchers have said, is essentially it created an alternative medium for you to get your education mm. and what we call as online learning or some people call it hybrid learning. So two things were very clear. And one of the things I just want to kind of get back a little bit in brief is the fact that in 2014 was the first year when we started working on looking at technologies to you know, kind of create a global classroom. Uh, by doing that, what we wanted were a couple of campuses, a couple of campuses to be linked up together and be able to uh, kind of you know, uh, have a video conference let's say from their meeting rooms or from their shared classrooms. And we'd actually try to do that. But unfortunately, those days, you only had Polycom and very few solutions in the market. And uh, we were like, you know, you can't be spending $100,000 on one set of video conferencing device. And so we, in order to find a replacement, we actually ended up with a Zoom technology. And we started using Zoom for creating those uh, inter-school uh, student collaboration, as well as, uh, you know, global classrooms. And it was done at a very, very small scale, but technology was taken in. We have, you know, we had in-house competencies to be able to scale that. And so when we moved to our 2018 uh, smart campus, it was the first time that we deployed the Zoom global classroom in a massive way. Uh, I would say half the school was wired. Almost 100% was wired for it. Uh, and, and, you know, the bandwidths were being allocated. This whole thing was planned. So when COVID happened, mm. it was just pressing a button for us. And we were able to deploy entire school in a virtual way within less than two weeks. And with zero downtime, with no disasters of strangers walking into your classes. And we took the best technology from Zoom and that we got it working. And not just in one campus, we got it working within a week in our Tokyo campuses, within two weeks in Singapore, and within three weeks all over the world. Now, that was because we were already familiar with the technologies of these global classrooms. And I remember one of the chief executives of one of the Singapore government uh, ministries actually asked us, they said, well, why did you implement this virtual technology earlier? We said, well, it was for global classroom. 
and they said but did you anticipate something like virtual classroom becoming so big and i, I said if i could anticipate that i would be in stock markets yeah. i wouldn't be doing this but i think on a on a lighter note it was something that helped us immensely now let's come to the sector now everyone i think by and large most of the schools including the good schools uh were completely inadequately able uh you know inadequate in terms of what they were able to do mm-hmm. i know for sure there were schools which managed to you know kind of get the zooms and the meetings and all those technologies for getting their classrooms online but many actually had def- detailed problems uh till the time i think uh, by a year end of 2020 there was still kind of sending homeworks and assignments via email to parents and i know i spoke to one head of school in malaysia with a ib british school and they said well we didn't have anything mm-hmm. uh, we didn't have in house resources and technology people to help us out we went to consultants and by the time we got it it was already end of the year so i think firstly schools realized that in addition to face to face learning you could actually use virtual as a complementary and we went another step ahead to actually get the hybrid learning in place so it, during the entire uh covid period while the ministries were giving different guidelines in different countries we were able to if some ministry said well you can only have 50% students in your school because they've got to be seated 1 meter apart and we were able to do that again with a flick of button because all our classrooms were completely wired uh there were classroom uh zooms inside the classrooms and teachers were able to show it and students were able to join hybrid either one week hybrid or one week face to face you know they were able to toggle between each other so i think at the end of the i mean as of let's say by end of this second quarter that we are looking at in 2022 which is roughly about you know close to about uh, two years of experience mm. the industry has begun to accept that you could have a different set of products and services being offered through virtual you could have different set of products and services to be offered in hybrid mode many higher learning institutions are already switching to hybrid mode but they are worried that you know if students are going to be online they have to drop the fees because that's a problem for everyone so it seems that every institution be it higher learning be it school is able to you know kind of create a balance between these online and face to face and hybrid and they they think what is required for the community we should be in a position to offer that and i'll tell you something very interesting i was in london last week uh, met a couple of school owners and one of them actually told us that they've introduced a online learning as a alternative so that students can join from homes and they come for two days they come to the school or during mondays to fridays and three days they don't come and they said we have got about 10 such students in our and that cohort of let's say about 5% of the school isn't that and i said why are the students doing that is that because the school has a lesser fee in that or is it because of some of the reasons and they said no some of these students are actually pursuing their hobbies some are playing tennis some are playing badminton or some other sports some are playing fine arts and what is the online learning giving them an opportunity to sit at the venue of that other activity Mm. and to be able to pursue their school at the same time so if you got 8 to 8 a.m to 2 a.m 2 p.m a school going on they will join for that school and then 2 p.m to 
rest of the day they're actually they're saving time our london you know is how good the traffic is right it's, it takes ages to go from one place to mm-hmm. other and so therefore they feel that this is something which is very useful to them saves a lot of subway time and metro time and uh, is able to allow them to do both activities together and i think that is a segment where there is a limited purpose of being able to save time to go to school and to be able to do a complementary activity at the same time is something which will very very interest uh, the batch of students and they will go for the online learning mm. uh, and and i think there is also a possibility that similarly now these trends will have to take a decade to actually take form and shape as to how they will actually grow up but another good thing is also corporate training and development also is following the same way yes so you exactly. have a great advantage of skilling people or building competencies you know exactly the same way earlier it used to be only online but now it's also become hybrid hmm. and there are kids who are taking us university course us university courses and uk university courses short term courses 3 months i'm doing 2 months here one month in uk or us i mean these are really good solid opportunities that have become very very largely possible and and mind you despite and the biggest advantages of that is the if you are putting something cross border the you get the time zone advantages or disadvantages if i am in the us and i am attending a online school during my evening hours or night hours from an organization in let's say london uh, i would then be saving a lot of day my day time to be able to put that together for something else or maybe for the family or maybe for somebody mm-hmm. else so i think these are the advantages so education will now take all these three mediums and products and services will kind of fit into these categories and that's how many complementary or many new unseen services are actually going to emerge and that is i think a great great boon for the entire education sector absolutely and for the students ultimately you know if we talk about the school of the future we talk about the school students of the future that the future googles um teslas of this world will want those students who you know maybe they just didn't study all day maybe they took time out and pursued their interests and their hobbies and you know they showed a bit of initiative there and were very agile and adapted to that environment where they had to make decisions and had to take the lead in their own development and learning as well and school plays a big role in that it's not like that happens outside of school school can actually facilitate and create the environment for that as well so it's been a really interesting and inspiring conversation with you at all um for the record if you want to find out more about at all we're going to share the links in a minute but also you're on linkedin i know you're active there at all to monica we'll put the details there that people can follow you on twitter as well we'll put your details if people want to stay up to date a man that enjoys traveling a lot he seems to be popping up in different cities every time i have a look at his, creep his social feed so you can stay up to date with his travels and see obviously if he's in your time zone as well it's definitely worth a meeting or a conversation at all thank you so much for today um really good talking to you what is the best way if people are listening maybe i am in that position that you know i am one of those family school businesses um what do i do next what's my sort of best step forward in terms of making contact and having that conversation with you and your team where would i start i think the first point that you need to start is to really think about 
what are the areas or you know what are the trends that you have not been able to assimilate in your school education uh do you see other schools in your neighborhood in your city are able to kind of you know barge ahead uh in the sense of technology in the sense of uh, student learning indexes in the sense of learning outcomes and if you feel that this there your school could do more i think that is when you should be talking to us we believe that we have all the necessary tools and aids and uh, competencies to provide to your school and give it a platform and take it to the next level so that it's able to compete with some of the best schools in your country as well as uh, emerge as a the most value for money and the most uh, i would say the best learning outcomes that any school ever provides in your in your geography i think that is what we think we can do uh we believe that uh, we can offer a very friendly rope in terms of getting transitions done very smoothly uh the parent communities are not going to be too much uh even you know coming to know about uh these things because everything is about you know making the processes efficient making teachers more competency based and more uh knowledge and skills based making sure your school operations are you know end to end completely automated and and uh, that is something that you would normally struggle with multiple technologies and outlook and google drives and you know multiple technologies you have and you have less resources within the organization so once you kind of team up with us we bring in all those things on a on a plate so that you know depending on what area you would like to strengthen we are able to offer you that piece of uh you know complete solution which you will be able to take it forward so i think we believe that the last point would be uh, it's it's something that you've done and i think you've done best uh in your capacity to make the school the way it is today and it has a excellent standing in the market uh among the parents and the communities and and now you would like professional people to come in to run this institution in, and to take it to the next level to preserve the legacy to be able to maintain the values that have been created and being uh, you know imparted to the students to be able to take that forward and to be able to suddenly become that tesla of your city or your country so that you get all the functions and all the power that you need to drive your organization at a very rapid pace and that's i think something that we can do very well and very quickly and i think that's when you should be talking to us we are happy to have a conversation with you give you a heads up on what what all things can possible if possible if you are able to travel to any of our campuses in any of these 10 countries we'll invite you to come and visit from uh, south korea to japan all the way to saudi arabia and we'll be able to host you there you can see it for yourself how schools can really become extremely efficient and can become extremely learning centric and learning driven as opposed to teaching driven and i think uh, we can have a great conversation there excellent that was a great conversation today atul tamanaka everybody chairman of global schools foundation atul thank you so much for sharing that journey with us in the audience today thank you thank you grad pleasure to be with you You've been listening to the Excel podcast with me Graham Brown. To subscribe and discover more conversations, go to www.xlpodcast.com.
www.kultur-podcast.org.